Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Two Bedroom, Two Bath, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2017. In our first story, Karen Killian tells us that while the family's new house was being renovated, it was close quarters in a studio apartment for her, her two younger siblings, the Beagle and two feral cats. Thank you. So, a few weeks before my 16th birthday, my parents sat us all down at the dining room table to tell us that they had lost our house. Now, you don't really lose a house, right? I mean, we were still sitting in the house at the table, but we could no longer afford to stay there. And it wasn't just our house, it was our home. And when I say that, I don't just mean home in the trite hallmark way. Yes, this was where the most vivid memories of my childhood were made, but we'd also worked our asses off as kids to spend over a 10-year period to transform the derelict dump my parents had bought into the home where we were finally gonna get to just enjoy living. We had only finished working on this house about a year before we had to move out. And it was a beautiful little house, white picket fence, dead-end street, wooded lot, and all these lovely, nifty design details that my dad had created just for us. But it was no longer going to be our home. Our another family moved in. And we had to pack all of our things into boxes and move. Now, the reason we had to move was my dad had made a series of really bad financial decisions, one after another, most of which he made without consulting my mother. Now, it would take a few more years for us to realize exactly what he had done, which he had developed a really bad blackjack habit. Um, but, you know, the, the, the and he had racked up tens of thousands of dollars worth of gambling debts. But he had also gambled in another way, which is that since he was a builder and we'd already remodeled this one house, he figured he would buy a whole bunch of other old rundown buildings and we would fix them up together as kids because we were great laborers. And <laughs> then he would make money renting them out. But even a $20,000 house isn't a great deal when it's, you know, chin deep with garbage that your children have to throw out the window. And then um, after you take out all the garbage, you realize you have to replace all the electrical and all the plumbing in the roof and rebuild the foundation from the bottom up. So my parents had sunk all the money they had into these buildings, which we still couldn't rent out, and they weren't really sellable, so we had to sell the one asset that they had left, which was our home. So a little bit after Christmas, again, everything went into boxes. We moved everything into the garage behind the biggest of the apartment buildings, which was a rundown old Victorian. Um, and we, the, we moved into the one apartment that on the main floor of this building. It had once been somebody's regal home, but somebody had chopped it up into apartments decades before and just kind of left it to decay. Um, and now we were moving in. Um, most of our stuff had to go into the garage because there was no room for it in the apartment. So it all went in the unheated second floor of this garage, and we moved in and we tried to just make the best of it. Um, now, I grew up in Duluth in northern Minnesota, which if anybody's been there, it's a very steep city. And so it feels fitting now when I look back at it that I had grown up in this 
nice little neighborhood on the top of the hill called Hunter's Park on the eastern hillside, just a good little family neighborhood. And we had ended up having to slide all the way down to the bottom of the hill, right? And we ended up on this street called Superior Street, um, which is the main street that runs parallel to Lake Superior. There are some beautiful neighborhoods on Superior Street, some of the nicest I've ever seen in my life. But the part of the town we had to live in wasn't quite so nice. But my father was a great talker. He was a salesman by trade, and he really made me believe that this was going to be okay, that we were going to rent, we were going to fix up this house, and we'd done it once before, and it was all going to be great and lovely. And because we were going to um, have all these renters, we were going to have no housing costs, and we were going to finally have enough money to do all sorts of things that we'd never been able to do, like travel and see the world. And all I wanted to do at that point was go anywhere other than there, so it seemed like a good idea. Um, but, of course, we had to contend with the daily reality. I tried to just keep that vision in my mind, and I really was susceptible to this like idea of the dreams that could come, but the reality of that apartment was pretty horrible. Um, first of all, it stank like cat piss. Um, so badly that even after we ripped out the carpets in the room that my brother and sister and I ended up having to sleep in, we had to rip out the carpets and the floorboards and lay a layer of new particle board down on the floor, and it still smelled like cat piss, right? Because it had saturated into the joists underneath. Um, so my, my, my parents took the one bedroom on the side, and their, their full-size bed took up most of the room. And my little brother and sister, I have an older brother too, but he joined the Navy a year before, so he got to escape this housing situation. Um, we moved into one little bedroom, it was a long, narrow room, and we had two sets of bunk beds and a little dresser and a little uh, shelf, so we could only fit just a few things in it. And like I said, everything else was in the garage. And the only decoration in the room was a poster that my dad had found somewhere of a cat hanging from a thread by its fingernails with some cliche statement that said, you know, what doesn't kill you make it makes you stronger. And he'd scrawled in his big man handwriting on the bottom, especially here. So, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm in high school. This is where I live. I don't think I told any of my friends. I know I never had anybody home in this whole period to visit my house. And um, we're living in this, in this room. And all of my stuff is at the garage. So then, you know, every once in a while, even though it's northern Minnesota and it's way below zero, I'd have to go in the garage and um, dig around in these boxes and try to find that book or that CD or that T-shirt, anything that I hadn't remembered to bring in the house when we first moved in. And one day, I was in the garage, and I realized somebody else had figured out that all of our stuff was in the garage, too. Um, it was the cat that had probably been living in our house. And she had gone into one of the boxes and had a litter of kittens. But it was way below zero, right? And she hadn't come back. And my family kept look at the kittens for a while. And two of them had died right away, but there were two that were still alive, and we were feeling very responsible. And also, my sister was six. She actually had her sixth birthday, right, as we were en enjoying this lovely transition in our lives. And she, this wasn't just her sixth birthday. This was her sixth birthday and only the second birthday she'd had with my family, because my parents had adopted her two years before. So this poor kid had come to live with us two years before to have this forever home, and then all everything had fallen apart, and now all she wanted for her birthday was a cat. So my mom thought, well, this is great. Now there's two kittens in the garage. 
didn't matter that one of the kittens had seven toes on her foot and the other one had six toes on her left, seven toes on the right foot, six toes on the left foot. Now we're living in this shitty, tidy two-bedroom apartment with three kids and two, uh, and the dog and two kittens. Okay, so we, we keep going and we're, we're remodeling the house and we're doing all we can. You know, the, really the whole house should be gutted, but we don't have any other place to live, so we have to live in it while we're doing it. And eventually it comes time to tear apart the room that we had been living in. So my little brother and sister and I have to move across the hall to the studio apartment. Okay, so I'm 16, then 17 years old, and I'm having my first apartment of my own, except I have to share it with my seven-year-old sister and my 14-year-old brother and my beagle. I loved my beagle. He was my, like, I would walk him for hours and hours every day just to get out of that house. And these two feral cats. Now, I hated cats. I always hated cats. Best conversations I always had with my crush in high school was that dogs were the best and cats stunk. And, you know, I just, I loved dogs and I hated cats. And these cats hated me. So every night I would go to bed on the top bunk in this studio apartment with my brother and my sister, the dog, and these two cats. And they would be all placid until everybody else fell asleep. And then they would attack me. <laughs> they would bat at my hair. They would claw at my face. It happened every single day. And I would take them off the bed and I would throw them on the floor. And then I would try to go back to sleep. And my parents weren't there, right? But I didn't want to wake up my sister because I didn't want her to see me like hitting the cats or anything. So I was trying to be really quiet. I'm like, what do I do with these damn cats so I could go to bed? Every single night, they're pawing at my head and they're clawing at my hair and they're just like on top of me everywhere. And I finally realized like, oh, okay, there's a door on the bathroom in this studio apartment. So I started locking the cats in the bathtub every night so that I could go to sleep and just letting them claw at the door every single night so I could go to bed. So, you know, as you might imagine, um, eventually the house got remodeled. Um, the, the floors were finally put in the week I graduated from high school. But um, not long after, it's probably no surprise to anybody, my parents got divorced. And um, I left home and I never went back. There was no place to go back to, but I just, I left forever. I, I had probably 22 roommates in the four years directly preceding this once I left home. But I swear to God, nothing phased me ever again after sharing that crappy studio apartment and that entire building with my brother and my sister and those two crazy ass seven-toed cats. Katie Mae Scripps didn't have roommates in her teacher's quarters, but she tells us in our next story that sharing a wall between her bathroom and the dorm bathroom meant all the students could potentially hear that she was really struggling. Okay, so after two years of working at the International School of Myanmar uh, in Yangon, which is the biggest city there, I decided to do something that everyone, myself included, thought was absolutely insane. I accepted a position as the first and only foreign teacher to ever work at this Burmese school up in the northern Shan state, close to the border with China. And I knew when I accepted the position that this was gonna be a really big challenge for me. I'm an extrovert. 
and I was going to a place where I knew I was going to be pretty isolated. I was going to be surrounded by people who, whose culture and language and everything was so vastly different from anything that I had ever known or experienced. Um, so I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I decided to do it anyway because uh, well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, I knew that this was a really unique opportunity for me to go and experience a culture that was completely different from my own and relatively free of Western influence. Um, they also uh, told me that I was going to have my own apartment on the third floor of this building overlooking the beautiful Shan Hills that are topped with these golden pagodas and... Um, and I, uh, there, was a, there was something about that that appealed to me. Uh, they also told me that I was going to be able to have my own motorbike. And after a couple years in Southeast Asia, that was my favorite way of exploring the region, was to get on a motorbike and just kind of like cruise around, checking out the, the hills and the farms and just this way of life that was vastly different from my own. And so when they offered me this position, I thought, well, I can do anything for three months, right? Uh, the day I arrived, they, they gave me a tour of the school. And I found out on this tour that this apartment that they had promised me was not yet ready. And I could see immediately why my apartment was not yet ready. There was a man standing by this old school cement mixer with a shovel. And there were about seven or eight women with baskets lined with plastic bags and he would load their baskets with wet cement. They'd put it on their heads, and they'd walk up three flights of stairs and drop this wet cement into a pile. And there was another man who was smoothing it all out, and then they'd come back down the stairs, back to the cement mixer, and load up again. So I'm thinking, oh my God, no wonder it's not ready in time. Um, so they showed me to this apartment that was going to be mine, this apartment that they had prepared for me. It was four cement walls, two windows with these really tacky curtains, teal with pink hearts all over them. And, um, there was a double bed frame with a twin bed mattress on it. And, uh, and I had my own bathroom. Now my bathroom shared a wall with the girls' dormitory bathroom and up up above my head, there were these holes in the wall for ventilation. Uh, and I could hear, my first night there, I could hear these girls showering. Now, uh, in Myanmar, they shower a little bit differently. They had like a big square trough full of water and some buckets. So when the girls would finish school, they'd fill up their buckets and splash over their heads. So when I first arrived, I could hear them showering in there. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Didn't think much of it. I had a tour of the school to go on. And so they're showing me around, and through all the doors and windows, I can see all these students peering out, checking out the foreigner who had come <laughs> to, to teach English. And, um, and everywhere I went, everyone was always watching me, checking out what I was doing. And they told me on my first day that I was not going to be allowed to leave the school because there was an election coming up about a week from when I arrived. And uh, if you're familiar with Southeast Asian politics at all, the, the, um, the situation in Myanmar, also known as Burma, is uh, not very stable. 
And the last time that they had had a big election, there had been a lot of violence and rioting. And, and so the people at my school were worried that anything would happen to me. And so they told me that I was not allowed to leave the school on my own, which was disappointing for me because the reason that I had gone was to check out this region that, um, that I was fascinated by and I really wanted to learn more and see more. Uh, so they told me I wasn't allowed to leave. They gave me a tour of the school and then they sent me back to this little apartment that they had made for me. And as I was getting all settled in, I could hear the girls in the bathroom. I thought, if they can hear, if I can hear them, they can hear me. So I knew that even though this apartment was technically my own, everyone could hear what was happening in, in my apartment. And this was a little unsettling, and after a few days of travel, I was exhausted and intimidated, and so I closed the door to my bathroom, and I quiet, cried quietly in my room. Now on the third day that I was there, I hear this knock on the door. Miss, miss, teacher, miss. And there was this girl with a tray of food. Uh, she was bringing me my breakfast and I opened the door and I saw this like little flittering of movement out of the corner of my eye. And I knew that there was something there. And I opened the door and I said, did you see that? She just kind of like, smiled. She couldn't understand me. She didn't speak English. I said, did you see? Uh, and so I took the tray from her and I set it down and I knew that there was something in my apartment. And so I closed the door and I could see a couple of legs sticking out from this towel that I had hung on the wall. And there was a huntsman spider with a leg span about this big. Now, I'm not actually afraid of spiders for the most part. I don't love them, but I don't hate them. Generally, when I see a spider, my, my reaction is to take a cup, trap the spider, put a piece of paper under it, let it outside, and release it. Well, I didn't have a cup big enough for this spider, so I grabbed a bowl. And... I took the bowl and I went to try to catch it and it scurried up out of my reach. And so it's hanging out there out of my reach, just kind of chilling. And, and I just sat and watched it because what else could I do? So I'm watching it. And I could tell it was actually wanted out of my apartment, which is a bit of a relief for me. I didn't want it there. It didn't want to be there, but it didn't know its way out. So it scurried around and finally found a way out, which is a relief. Okay, I thought, okay, cool, I'm all right. Which is good, because I had to be to school in about 20 minutes. And so I thought, okay, I'm cool, I'm cool. And I went to brush my teeth, and I walked into my bathroom, and there in my bathtub was a scorpion. <laughs> now, I'm kind of, I'm okay with spiders. Scorpions, I don't know. And this is Burma. And there are things in Burma that will kill you. And I didn't know if this scorpion was venomous. And I didn't know what to do. I certainly wasn't going to, like, take a cup and trap it and put it outside. So I went and strapped on my shoes, came back into my bathroom, and just, like, <laughs> stomped the shit out of that thing. Oh, it was definitely dead by the time I was done with it. Um, and then I had to go and teach. So 
So I went and taught for the rest of the day. And that night I came home. And I came home to my apartment, which was really like my only sanctuary because everywhere I went in Myanmar, people were constantly staring at me because I was a foreigner. I was obviously a foreigner. And so I, I always felt like I was being watched unless I was in my apartment. My apartment was kind of like my safe space. And all of a sudden, my apartment wasn't really my safe space so much anymore. And so I closed the door to my bathroom because I didn't want anyone to hear me. And I cried quietly in my room again. A couple weeks later, the election had come and gone. And I thought I was going to be allowed to go, but they were really funny about that. They weren't really letting me out. And so a couple weeks later, I, I thought, screw it. I have got to get out of here. And so I strapped on my running gear. And I thought, I'm going to go for a run. I won't go far. I won't be gone long. No one will even notice I'm gone, or so I thought. And I thought, all right, I'm going for a run. And I ran through the school campus. And I got to the gate. I ran through the gate. I thought, all right, cool. I'm out. And I saw this hill in the distance covered in these beautiful wildflowers. I thought, I'm going to run there. So I start running, and my shoe came untied. I stopped to tie my shoe, and I hear this, Miss, teacher, Miss, Miss. And I turn, and there's this girl, this Burmese girl, in traditional Burmese clothing. And the traditional Burmese dress is like a kind of like a, it's called a longi. It's a tight skirt. And she was wearing this tight skirt chasing after me. Because she had been placed, she was one of the people that had been placed in charge of keeping track of me and making sure that everything was okay. And I turned and I saw her running after me in these like bedazzled sandals that were definitely not meant for running. And the thought occurred to me, I'm faster than her. <laughs> I could just run away. But I knew that she would have to chase me and I knew that she would have people to have to answer to. And so I walked back to the campus with her. And I went to my room and I closed the door so that the girls in the dormitory couldn't hear me. And I cried quietly to myself. This was becoming a bit of a ritual. I would always close the door so no one could hear me and cry quietly. Now, it wasn't all bad while I was there. I did have some really interesting experiences. Because they weren't letting me go on my own, I was getting like a very local, locally influenced tour of the region. And I had also been invited on a number of occasions to my principal's house. And she had um, an aunt that everyone affectionately called Auntie. Now, Auntie had been orphaned at a young age, and she was raised by Catholic nuns. So she actually spoke a bit of English. And so she was someone that I could talk to. Uh, and so I would go, and she told me about Buddhism and, and told me funny stories. And I really enjoyed spending time with her. Uh, but overall, I was really struggling there. Everywhere I went, people were constantly staring at me. Everyone was like wanting to know what was I eating, what was I wearing, what was I doing. And I just really felt like an animal in a zoo, you know, like everyone was always just observing me. I was, it was an uncomfortable time for me. And this all kind of came to a head about a month after I arrived. Um, my, my principal called me 
and said, Hlamya'u is going to the hot springs. Would you like to go? Um, and in this city there, I was living, there were these geothermic natural hot pools that were quite famous in the area, and I had never been there. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll go. I didn't have anything else to do. Uh, and so I went, and she hopped on a motorbike with another man from our school. I got on my motorbike, and I followed them to the hot springs. And we got there, and she found, um, they found a room for me to change in, and she said, okay, you can change here. I said, what about you? Are you aren't you coming? She said, oh, no, I don't like hot springs. Well, uh, why, why are you here? Oh, miss, for you, for you. It's for you, miss. Oh, okay, uh, thanks. And so I changed into this sarong. The Burmese are far too modest slash repressed for actual bathing suits, and so I put on this sarong that I didn't mind getting wet and, um, and went to the hot springs. And Hlamya'u and the other man from my school held my things and watched me <laughs> while I sat in this hot water. I was sitting there thinking, man, if I had friends here, this would be really fun. Because there were like beer stations around there, places you could get beer and like hang out with you. There are all kinds of people with friends all kind of enjoying this hot water. And I thought, man, this would be really fun if I could go have a beer with some friends and then soak in the hot water and then go get another beer or whatever. But that wasn't my reality. My reality was I had two people just standing there, staring at me, watching me, waiting for me to like be done enjoying the hot springs. <laughs> so I only stayed for a few minutes. And as I was sitting there, I thought to myself, okay, <laughs> what am I gonna do when I'm done here? Go back to my apartment, close my door so that the girls can't hear me and cry quietly again. And so I said to her, will you take me to the cinema? You don't have to stay. You can just take me to the cinema and you can leave me there. And I promise when the movie is done, I'll go straight back to school. Oh, miss. It's late. It's 6 o'clock on a Saturday. Oh, miss, it's very late. I mean, it's 6 o'clock. It's okay. Oh, miss, it's already dark. Like what? Like nobody goes to see a movie after dark? And so I said, it's okay. I promise I'll go home. Oh, miss, it's not possible. It's possible. It's fucking possible. All you have to do is go to the cinema. I will follow you. It'll be fine. Uh, it's not possible. And so I followed them home, choking back tears. We got back to the school. I thanked her and went back to my room, closed the door to the bathroom, and called my mom. <laughs> now, there's something about the sound of my mother's voice that just kind of like opens the floodgates for me. I called her, Mom. And she said, are you okay? No, I'm not okay. This is not okay. I just wanted to go to the cinema. They won't let me. They won't let me do anything. And I cried to my mom for a good couple of hours on the phone. And, um, and at that point, I did not give a shit who could hear me crying. I just did not care. I was so ready to be done. I, was, I remember saying to my mom, 
if they don't let me go out on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to go as in I'm going to leave. I can't, I can't stay here anymore. I am done. I'm so done with this place. And I knew that all the girls in the girls' dormitory could hear me absolutely losing my shit. But I just didn't care at that point. I did not care. And I uh, finally calmed myself down, talked to my mom for a while. And I thought, I'm all right. I talked to my mom for a long time. It was getting really late. But with the time difference, my mom was still awake. And I didn't care that I was wasting the night because I knew that the next day was Sunday. And it was, um, I was going to be able to sleep in, or so I thought. The next morning, knock, 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 knock at my door. And instead of the girl who was always there with my breakfast, it was my principal and the assistant principal and all the other head teachers at the school and auntie. She had been brought in to translate. She said, Miss, it's okay. Now you can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. It's okay. It's no problem. No problem. And even though that wasn't really the way that I had wanted to go about attaining my freedom, I got what I wanted. I I was able, after that, to take my motorbike whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted, and do my own thing. And so I was able to stay for the next couple months. And I did it. I stayed. And thank you. cast of roommate characters and one Chicago apartment was in many ways sensory overload, as we learn in the next story from Elon Cameron. So this is an excerpt from a longer story, so if it doesn't make any sense, you'll just have to hit me up for the like 17-page version. Living in Chicago anywhere below the wealth level of something, say, like... Uh, Bruce Wayne means you need an apartment and some roommates. And as soon as you find the roommates, you need another apartment. And as soon as you find the apartment, you need some other roommates. It's just a constant turnover of apartments and roommates. Of course, you hear about these weird legends of this like magical studio apartment somewhere that someone has that's affordable. But all the ones that I ever saw were going through some sort of war, flood, or pestilence of a biblical proportion. I've had my share of housemates. The first one was Carolyn. She was a painter and sculptor from California. She was 25 years old, and this was the first time she'd ever lived away from home. So she spoke to her mother on the phone several times a day. And when she wasn't on the phone with her mother, she was guarding the phone, reminding me that her mother could call at any moment. (laughs) Carolyn was also one of those sorts of roommates who always ate your last bagel. Her parents sent her, like, fat envelopes full of money and, like, big boxes of beautiful Californian food, and she would eat my last bagel every time. And so one day I just fucking lost it, and I was like, you don't seem to understand that if you eat my last bagel, like, I don't get a bagel today. That's my bagel for today, and I don't get a bagel today because you ate my bagel for the day. We didn't really talk much after that. (laughs) From 1994 to 98, I had a series of housemates. I moved around Chicago's north side, living in Ravenswood, Rogers Park, and even Evanston. I had a depressed teenager roommate who I 
pretty much, I'm sure, is the reason I don't like Radiohead. <laughs> Sorry, it's true. It's true. I know. My heart. I had a nerdy Tai Chi classmate who disparaged me every time I ate raw fruit or left the house without a blanket wrapped around my neck. Um, I had a reclusive illustrator roommate who I barely ever saw, who I'm pretty sure hated me through and through. At this point in my life, I just transitioned from waiting tables and doing freelance graphic design, also known as what you do after attending the prestigious Chicago School of the Art Institute. <laughs> At this time, I decided I had a bright future working as a temp. I went to the ADECO training center and learned all of the Microsoft Office suite by just clicking through bullshit for hours. <laughs> and I made something like $7 an hour, which was a pale comparison to the service industry job I had where I earned tips. But when I stopped caring if people tipped and actually relished the chance to sling snarky remarks rather than their linguine, I knew it was time to hang up the apron. I loved Evanston. It felt like Traverse City to me. It was home and cute and quaint. And I found really cheap housing. But I got tired of explaining to everyone I met why I didn't live in the city. I got tired of being kind of invisible to my target audience, queer people. So people would often mistake me for straight. I think because I lived in the suburbs, or maybe because I'm a girl, <laughs> or worse. Because, see, when I was 26, everyone told me I looked like I was 19, which really meant I looked like I was 12. <laughs> and I'm not bragging here. This was not an asset to my life in any way at the time. <laughs> what I really needed was to be around queer people and to come out in a meaningful way. I needed to find my community. And then it happened. I saw a hand-colored 3x5 index card at Women and Children First Bookstore they had a magical bulletin board in the back. It was the spring of 1998. That bulletin board was a place where incredible exchanges of intergalactic proportions took place. It's where people got jobs, shared rides, built dreams, hooked up, where women and genderqueer folks started bands and organized protests and marches. This is where I learned of and attended my first lesbian Avengers meeting. This is where I, I was hired as a camera assistant on a film set. And this is where I found Kiki. I called about the apartment. The first conversation was very matter of fact. We'd meet the next day after work. She would show me the apartment and the laundry room and I could make my decision. I didn't have any other options at the time. I wasn't really looking much and had to be out of my situation within a month. The landlord of my vast, crumbling Victorian two-flat on Evanston's south side was selling, and he was moving to Indiana, which made me judge him as a total sellout. <laughs> the apartment Kiki found was beautiful, 12-foot ceilings, windows facing the upper branches of a tree-lined street somewhere between Edgewater and Argyle. We would pay a higher price, though, because the landlord called it East Andersonville, which it is now, but that was 20 fucking years ago. <laughs> It was a gated six-flat. Walking up the huge oak steps with carved panels in the walls and banisters looked like they belonged in a museum. The sun poured down from an overhead skylight. 
Standing at the front door was none other than the blue-haired dyke I'd seen on a street in Evanston just days before. Surely it was a sign. Hi, I'm Kiki. I shook her hand and just laughed. So good to meet you. Entering the apartment, there was huge etched glass mirror with carvings all around it, again in oak. It had glowing hardwood floors, a decorative fireplace with mantle in the front room, which had three huge sitting windows facing west. Off this room was a small sliding pocket door, which revealed a tiny bedroom, an even tinier closet that would be the place I called home. Turning toward the back of the building was a hallway, a traditional Chicago shotgun apartment, meaning one could shoot a straight shot from the front to the back. Along the hallway, two more bedrooms separated by a pink bathroom with original tile. The secondary half bath before you got to the kitchen and dining room. Off the dining room was a windowed sun porch that faced east, and off the kitchen, a tiny pantry and a back door that exited the building stairs down three flights to a cement courtyard with a picnic table. The beginning was great. We were building a queer utopia. We had weekly house meetings and monthly house dinners we could invite all our friends to. We had such vision and hope, and many of these things came to pass. In my time there, I became a spoken word artist. I became the programming director of Women in the Director's Chair, a not-for-profit organization for women in film. We hosted screenings. My 28th birthday party was a huge bash. We had a kissing booth. <laughs> Rehearsals, dinners, parties, meetings, marches, more parties. The place supported all of us in our activities and our actions. But there was unrest in the house. Kiki and Heather, though idyllic looking on a street corner, were actually depressed 20-somethings. They were both straight-edged, so no booze or drugs, but they medicated themselves with vast quantities of refined sugar, fake meat patties, and marathons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> they decided that their love was represented perfectly in the love between Tara and Willow. And their relationship ended almost identically at the same time. Sorry, guys. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so Kiki decided that she would go on a trip for a week while Heather moved her things out. Their relationship never really made sense to me because Kiki was this vibrant person and Heather was such a downer. The most excited I ever saw her was when she was reading from Foucault at a fucking meeting in our living room, just <laughs> acting superior and intelligent. <laughs> I referred to her affectionately as the wet sweater. <laughs> but the other roommate was the real problem child. It has to happen. In any communal living situation, at some point, everyone present creates an alliance against one person in the house. You know it's true. <laughs> and in this house, it was Jane. Jane was the sort of girl that I would have had a crush on if I didn't already know too much. <laughs> she was cute and smartly dressed and rode her bicycle everywhere. She had a command of literature and poetry and loved much of the same music I did, but the friendship ended right there. For starters, she smelled. Now, I love rebels. I love anarchists. 
I love visionaries, people who beyond current politics and reason are building a new world order. I even love some vegans. <laughs> but this woman had a stench about her that I can only describe as feral. <laughs> some kind of vegan anarchist rot, which makes absolutely no sense because she spent every waking fucking hour in the goddamn bathtub. listening to Joni Mitchell's Blue Album <laughs> for 18 months. <laughs> I don't know. It was like a man's foot plus armpit plus wet cabbage. I invited my friend Sheila over to see my place for the first time, and I, I realized I had to explain something to her before she could come inside, so I closed the apartment door behind me, and I was like, oh, hey, by the way, um, my roommate smells bad, and she's a phone sex worker. And Sheila was like, okay. And I was like, out of the home. So it sounds like she's having nasty, loud sex in there, but she's just getting paid to sound like she's having nasty, loud sex in there, so she's not really doing that. <laughs> we went about our craft project. <laughs> it was weird, too. The vegan anarchist roommate would transform into this weird, giggly, flirty sex worker, during which period of time she was vastly more enjoyable than the rest of her life in our apartment. <laughs> she wasn't lecturing me on the merits of veganism. Thank you, I was raised vegetarian, bitch. <laughs> or for being combative about toilet paper. This was the other thing. Everyone in the apartment was broke. We were all in our 20s, we were all hustling to make ends meet. We were living in the city. We just wanted to carve out a place and do something meaningful with our lives. And we had a ro rotating toilet paper purchasing policy. <laughs> Kiki, Elon, Jane, Heather. We broke up the couple so that it would be equitable, so it wouldn't just be like, oh, well, we bought toilet paper last week. No, every individual person who wipes their ass and other things gets to buy goddamn toilet paper for all of us. I found it really annoying when it was Jane's turn because she would just steal one of those three-foot fucking <laughs> rolls of toilet paper from some public restroom. And without the dispenser, how does that even make any sense? You're just like... And plus, the thing sticks out like a good four inches from the back of the toilet seat where she'd set it. So you'd always get your back meat scraped when you sat down to take a whatever. <laughs> Not cool. I'd, I'd try to like bring this to her attention in the most gentle way I knew how, and she would just go mental about how I was just an elitist consumer who has no idea how classist I am. Her parents both had fucking college degrees, which pushed some buttons for me, but I need some goddamn toilet paper that comes on a normal goddamn roll. <laughs> How do you even get that off of there? It doesn't make any sense. She also refused to wash dishes because she felt like that was a construct of the patriarchy. 
So she would literally eat out of a measuring cup with a measuring spoon her vegan goddamn cereal for days just to prove a fucking point. Before Kiki moved away, after Jane finally moved out, Laura and X moved in. They were a cute young couple who were into anime. They were from the South, and when they spoke to you, you felt like their drawl was the beautiful sound of a Southern grandmother addressing you. A couple days after they moved in, Kiki pulled me aside and was like, hey, just so you know, um, Laura and X are really into hardcore BDSM. And I was like, bondage, dominance, submission, sadomas. Oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. You know, because consensual sex between adults for me is like so great. Yay, go team. <laughs> but this took sex in the other room sounds to a new level. <laughs> These people sounded like they were kicking the shit out of each other in there. And then there was blood. First place I saw it was a, a streaky hand smear on the door, which I thought was some kind of ritualistic thing, and I was kind of cool with it. But then I saw drips in the hallway on the floor, and I got a little uncomfortable. And one day when I came home from my mind-numbing eight and a half hours of scanning records, there was blood in the kitchen, on the fridge, on the floor, in the sink. I fucking lost my mind. I marched to their bedroom and did the usual, like, passive-aggressive, like, I'm going to tell you a thing or two. And the smaller of the two of them came to the door in a robe, looking bedraggled, and said she couldn't talk. I started looking for an apartment that night. Kiki was back and forth between her many dating adventures. I barely saw her anymore. I still had boxes that I hadn't even unpacked from the move. So when word came that a stock image salesperson who was in training to become a drug rep was looking for a roommate, I was into that. Her apartment was so clean. It looked like the pages of a magazine to me. She needed a place to rent. She needed to rent part of her place because she couldn't occupy the 3,200 square foot by herself. <laughs> but I loved living with the yuppie. Everything was pretty tidy, except for me. She eventually found another girlfriend to live with, and I eventually found one of those mystic creatures, a one-bedroom apartment in a shitty part of town that I could do anything I wanted with. So I did. The last time I saw Kiki was before we moved back to Traverse City. She'd come over to stay with us for a few nights. I came home from a long shift at St. Joseph's Hospital, and she was in our bathtub with two people I'd never met before. She cavalierly said, come on in and talk to us. It was just like old times. <laughs> I don't miss having roommates. I don't miss being lonely and busy all the time. I don't miss the many ridiculous things that I've endured, but I'm glad they happened. I'm glad I survived the weird and slightly traumatic situations such as these, because these things made me a better roommate. Not that I'm great. And in some cases, a better person. After 20 years, I can finally listen to Joni Mitchell's Blue again. <laughs> but it took 20 whole years. Thank you.
In this next story, Janelle Bowers explains that she was in dire need of a place to live and thought she'd found the perfect roommate situation. But then things went south. So this story is how I came to live in said house that's been an adventure from the beginning to be certain. Um, I should have known it wasn't going to work out well because the first time that I met, we're going to call her Dee. First time I met Dee, I was very pregnant. I was going through a divorce. She worked at a local establishment. And I was in like a heated argument with my soon-to-be ex-husband on the phone. And I was like cursing up a storm. Uh, I have a foul mouth. so. And she looks at me and she goes, you need to watch your fucking mouth. And I said, I'm pregnant, fuck you. <laughs> and then we stared at each other for a long time. And then she went away. But then after my divorce, I lived in this like crazy farmhouse that we could never like seem to keep propane in, in it. And it was like 55 degrees all the time. And I had a kid who was learning to crawl. And I was like driving in that hell winter. You guys remember that hell winter where we got like 4,000 inches of snow or whatever it was? And I was working at the resort, which was like the shittiest job in the world. And I was driving an hour and like death defying, like blizzard with two children, like, oh God. So we really needed another place to live. And um, a friend introduced me to Dee again and said, hey, so. Um, She's a single mom, you're a single mom, she has this big house, her and her boyfriend just broke up, you should move in there. And I thought, oh my God, it's right downtown, it's cheap, it was like 500 bucks a month, I got essentially a two bedroom apartment to myself, it's a split level house upstairs, like regular three bedrooms, downstairs, kind of like a, a living area, but there's a washer and dryer in it, but that's fine, right? And there's a, a two bedrooms and a bathroom, and I thought, this will totally work. Totally. I get there and there's like, kind of looks like the floor of like a gym in the 1960s, but I thought, you know what, I can work with this. I used to eat out of dumpsters and steal the giant rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> I got this shit. We're gonna do it. We've got it. I did that. I did that shit. It was me. Yeah, I was the one. So I move in and I, I, I like try to polish that turd like as good as I can, right? But there's only like, you can put so much lacquer on a piece of shit, it's still totally a piece of shit. Uh, the thrift store furniture didn't do a lot to help, but I was like a you know single mom and I'm thinking, you know what, my kids will look back on this and just go, remember that time when we lived in that really shitty place? That was fun, wasn't it? But we were making the best of it and I only had to drive 15 minutes and winter had let up. And I felt like I was like moving into this sisterhood of single moms, right? Like we were gonna do it and we were gonna be independent and it was gonna be awesome. And then I figured out that Danielle D, sorry, she totally lives in this town. Everybody knows now. Uh, I figured out that she like drinks a lot. Like, and it, it started to be noticed because I would come upstairs. So we shared the kitchen, which was upstairs and then the laundry, which was downstairs, so we kind of both had to be in each other's spaces a little bit. I would like come upstairs and there'd just be like money all over the table and like a half-eaten frozen pizza and like just shit like all over the place in the kitchen. I thought, that's fine, it's cool, 
it's cool. I'll just do my dishes and do my shit in the kitchen and get out of here. And then some other weird stuff started happening. Like there would just be like this rotating door of men through the house, which is like cool, like slut it up. That's awesome, fine. <laughs> do your bit. I am not judging. Uh, but she had like a six-year-old daughter. <laughs> And, it, and like it would happen when the daughter was home and I was like, fuck, this is way too much like my childhood. I can't, it's a lot. But then she was like amazing sometimes, right? Like she always had people over and like had a bottle of wine to share and like a good porch sit for like a good long time with good conversation. And she was always really encouraging me, you know? She'd always be like, Jay, you're a bad bitch. You're doing this, you're owning it. If I had to go to a birth, she would like watch my kids for me and be happy to do it. And when I would come home, she would be like, oh, you're just, I can't believe you do that, so wonderful. And so there was this like push-pull and we really sort of developed this sisterhood, but she could be a raging fucking bitch. Like, so mean. She would just call her mom and be like, mom, you're a cunt, and then like hang up on her. And I was like, oh my God, dude, that's your mom. Like, you have a kid, you're a mom. You don't talk to moms like that. And then it started to get a little bit more hairy. Um, so she, the sisterhood started to be broken. She like found sort of a sugar daddy. This this the guy that like lived, he was like 45 and like maybe a little pudgy and he like lived in Chicago. And uh, but she would like have these like cut 26 year old dudes like at the house when he wasn't around. Um, and he came to town once and I knew he was in town. What I didn't know is that they were to be staying in a hotel a couple of the nights that he was there. So I get this call at three in the morning. It says, it's like, hey, can you let me in? The door's locked. And I say, sure. He goes charging past me. I'm like, oh fuck. I have done something very bad. I did not know. And what he finds is her fucking the 26-year-old guy in the bed. And now I'm the bad guy because I let them in the house. I didn't know I was asleep. Well, what had happened was she got super blacked out, drunk, forgot he was in town, and like just went on autopilot. Like, yes, I'm going to fuck the 26-year-old dude that I fuck when he's not here. I had no idea. So trust was broken at that point. <laughs> she felt as though I violated some sort of privacy. I felt as though she violated the code of like single motherhood that we were bad bitches doing this on our own and you have a sugar daddy and now I'm in trouble? That's not okay. Mm-mm, not okay. So then, you know, maybe there was some distance, but we still, I, I really felt strongly towards her because I felt like if I could just encourage her to like get her shit together and not pass out half in the hallway and half in the bathroom when her daughter was home, that like maybe I could save this little girl from like the shit show I had gone through, right? Uh, maybe a little codependency at work there, I'm not quite sure. Um, so one day I have a really high energy little boy. He likes to throw tantrums sometimes and at this point he's like four and a half. I have a year and a half old and a four and a half year old. And he wakes up one morning and he's just fucking pissed off. And I don't know why, because he's four and a half and like he can be pissed. And I give him a timeout. But timeouts don't start until you stop screaming. Like you can't sit in timeout and scream the whole time. That's not a timeout, that's just you sitting on the toilet screaming. 
and I, I hold to it, right? Well, he sat there and screamed for 45 minutes at 8 o'clock in the morning until he finally stopped, and then he had his couple-minute timeout, and then we were done with the thing. But the day proceeded in that general fashion. And as any single parent knows, when you have a rough day like that, and it gets to be about 5.30, and you're like on the countdown, like, okay, I have three hours to do this. I have to make dinner. I was like in my fat pants already, because I was done. And I had this look on my face, like I am done, and I'm surviving right now, barely, but I'm surviving, I'm gonna make this fucking casserole, and we're all gonna be happy. <laughs> and Danielle walks up to me and says, you know, it's amazing you have any hair left at all. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, what, what's that? And she says, well, it sounds like you've been pulling it out all day. That's not funny. That's what I said, I said, that's not funny. Please, you're not being helpful right now. I'm surviving and you're not being helpful. And then she started screaming at me. And she sort of mistook my diplomatic nature for someone who deals with bullshit like that. <laughs> and so I started yelling at her back. For all the times that like I came home and the air conditioner was on and the, all of the windows in the house were open, like all of that shit just really came to a head in that moment. <laughs> and she comes back and she said, you know, I wouldn't have to listen to your kid if you weren't such a shitty parent. If you did anything besides beat them, I at this moment am holding a full-size kitchen trash can that I'm getting ready to take out to the garbage. I take said trash can and I throw it at her head. And she's a quick bitch, she like dodges it, she misses it, and it splatters all over the wall. And then she tried to fight me. <laughs> And I said, let's do it. And I think she got a little scared, like she wasn't <laughs> expecting that from me. So I was like, yeah, we can do, we can, we can do this, let's do this. Uh, and I looked at her straight in the eye like I did the first time I met her and she told me I need to watch my fucking mouth. And we did the death stare, so we did that again. And then we didn't speak for two months at all. Not a word, not even a text message. There was a couple of passive aggressive notes about bills that sure that happened not another word was spoken and by the end of that like month and a half of silence and tension I fucking lost my mind <laughs> and my boyfriend came home one day and I was like rocking in the middle of the living room I was like I'm gonna fucking lose it I can't be around this terrible devil woman anymore she's ruining my life and so I went to a community mental health clinic <laughs> because I was having some problems and I told this woman my whole story. And she sat and listened to me for two hours and she said, you've had undiagnosed PTSD for 25 years and you need this woman out of your house, like immediately. She said, hang on, let me go, let me go talk to my, my boss and see if we can help you. She came back and the woman was crying. Like I knew it was serious because she was literally crying and she was like, I can't help you. You're too high functioning and I know you're just like trying to hold on right now, but I just, I can't, I can't do anything for you. But what it did is start me on this 
that diagnosis helped, right? I went, oh my God, I'm not crazy. Like there's something, there's, there's a path forward here. And so Danielle moved out and we have never spoken since. We've actually never even run into each other, which is like crazy in this tiny of a town. And I got to move out of the shitty basement part and move upstairs. And then it didn't feel quite so much like a Charlie Brown Christmas always <laughs> in life. <laughs> but it started me on in this path to recovery, right? And when she left, she left a hand mirror. Like, a, she just forgot it, you know? One of the, like a tabletop mirror. And I use it every day because I didn't have one, and it's really convenient to get natural lighting to put on makeup <laughs> like when I go sit by the window rather than in my bathroom. But I look in that mirror, and almost every day I am reminded that you have to be careful who you let close to because something really serious might get reflected back. <laughs> As Jeff Smith explains it, a dispute over missing money with his roommates led to some hard lessons about the assumptions people make about others. Thank you. So this story happened about 40 years ago when I was about 20. And I had gotten out of school uh, for the summer and I moved up to Leelanau County, and it was the first time I'd ever lived in Leelanau County for the summer, and I was really stoked about this. And I had a job at the Cove, waiting tables, <laughs> and, you know, good job. And I uh, went to live with this friend of mine who had a teepee uh, in, <laughs> in Shabbytown. And, and I just had that sense I was 20, and the world was just, like, opening up to me, right? And, and the previous summer, I had hitchhiked out when I was 19 to Vancouver Island and back. And this summer, I was living in a teepee in Shabbytown, kind of in the woods by the church there. And I was just really excited about the way things were going and, um, and kind of making it all good. We were making friends with some of the young Indian guys there. And we'd sit around the teepee at night and learn about what it's like to be a young Native American guy. And I remember learning that... Uh, they called themselves Anishinaabe. And I never heard that word. You know, they were like Ottawa and Chippewa. And they're like, no, we call ourselves Anishinaabe. And it was all kind of part of that thing, kind of reinforcing when you're 20 and the world's opening up. They're like, the world's not really how they told us it was. It's this other thing, and we're finding out, you know, what that is. And that was just a really good thing for me. And some other people moved onto the teepee land uh, this friend of Tim, my roommate, the teepee owner, Joey, this guy moved in. He's 25. He seems so much older than us, right? And then he was there a couple weeks. And he said, my, my cousin Jeffrey just got out of Jackson prison and needs a place to stay. Can he stay here? And we're like, <laughs> and Jeffrey had gotten, he wasn't, Anyway, we were told it wasn't violent. He had gotten busted for, like, having 30 pounds of weed. You know, and back then, <laughs> you went to the world's largest walled prison, right? And now you would just, you know, call yourself a doctor and start writing <laughs> prescriptions, <laughs> you know. So uh, when I think about this time, this really awesome awakening, the teepee, it's also distilled this one morning. We had stayed up all night at uh, solstice, and I love solstice and that super early sunrise. 
There's this bonfire, and right about daybreak, uh, one of the young Indian guys said, hey, why don't you come over to my house? I want to show you something. So I remember just walking through the field, and the dew is just covered with grass. You know how lush the grasses are in June. And it, and it was dawn, <coughs> and uh, we went to his house, and he showed me this little sweat lodge he had built, and he's about my age. And it was like a one-man sweat lodge, so it was like the size of a, like a pup tent. And um, he explained to me that how young Indian men would go into the sweat lodge and look for vision and wisdom as they're heading into uh, manhood. And, um, sorry, I forgot to turn my alarm off here. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, it was the first time I realized, like, oh, th to these people, the Native American religion, uh, it's not a set of parables or silly or cute stories or whatever. It's as real to them as Christianity is to so many Americans, right? So, again, it was just all part of this world awakening in your 20 thing. And the crazy thing is, in a week or two, all this thing just totally went to hell. <laughs> and... Uh, and this is how it went down. Um, <laughs> the teepee, is kind of a big thing. Like, it's 20 feet in diameter. We had a lot of stuff in there. We had, like, two twin beds and a, and a desk and a couch and a place to hang our clothes. And when my friend Tim would come home from waiting tables, he would slide the drawer out in this desk and just put the money right there in the front. And if you open that drawer, it would be the first thing you'd see. So one day that money was gone. And you can't lock the door in a teepee, right? And it was like 300 bucks, which I actually looked on Google and an uh, inflation calculator. That'd be like $1,000 today. So like enough money to kind of get upset about. So who, who took the money? You know, our, our felon friend? You know, our Native American friends who had no money? You know, they, they, they were saying they had no money to buy weed. You know, would they, would they take the money? We didn't know. Was it somebody we didn't even know? We'd never maybe seen. Uh, and so we never really decided this, right? But a few days later, we were um, we went over to the church because there's a free laundromat at the church because so many homes in Shawbytown, this is like mid-late 70s, had either just gotten or still did not have power or running water. And so the church ran this free laundromat, and we would use it. Uh, to keep our waiter clothes clean, you know. And so we walk in there, and sometimes we go there late at night after work. And uh, sometimes the young people would kind of hang out in there, and our Indian friends were there. And, uh, and I, you know, and all of a sudden Tim says to them, hey, there's 300 bucks missing out of the teepee. Uh, you guys know about that? And this one guy, Ike, says, kind of looks down at the floor. He's like, we know anything about it. And Tim says, well, somebody took it. And Ike says, well, uh, we don't know anything about it. And that was the end of the conversation. That was the whole conversation. But that conversation completely changed the course of the summer. Uh, so we went out of there. And a few days later, uh, a down vest is stolen out of the teepee. And it's like, okay, we still don't know who's doing this, you know. And then a week goes by, and Joey's car is stolen. And Jeffrey, 
says, well, that sucks because there's a shotgun in the trunk. And we're like, you're six weeks out of Jackson prison and you're driving around with a shotgun? You know, and you have this awareness like, well, maybe there's more to Jeffrey than we, like, really know about, right? And so those are some tense days as we'd, like, come home late at night from waiting cables. And I just so remember, like, the headlights of the car kind of bouncing through the field on the two-track and kind of shining on the wall of the forest there with that kind of dark hole where the trail goes into the teepee, you know? And you're just sitting there going, there's a shotgun out there unaccounted for and there's people here that maybe don't want us and I don't want to imply that there was any violence ever shown to us but like you just kind of go there with your thoughts you turn the lights off and it's just pitch black and we never use flashlights or anything just because we knew the trail it's just pitch black you're like I'm gonna walk down that trail right now and I just remember it was so tense well then a week later police came you know, like we found the car, it's buried up to its axles in some orchard somewhere, and uh, Jeffrey checked the trunk, and the shotgun was still there. So that was. So then maybe a week later, we're driving, uh, we're heading out to work, and we're driving down the path to the M22, and Frank, one of our the Indian guys, is walking right there. And Frank uh, never talked, and I don't mean like he rarely talked. Like I mean he. I don't think I ever heard him say a word. And he always wore mirrored aviator glasses and a hat. And I realized, looking back on it now, he was probably schizophrenic or something, you know, very serious like that. But since it was like the set, the sensitive 70s and all, his best friends just called him fucked up Frank. <laughs> and uh, so we, di we didn't know him well enough to call him fucked up Frank. We just called him Frank. And. Um, <laughs> So Tim, who's more of a hothead than I am, like stops the car, leaps out, and he's yelling at Frank, like, where's my money? And I want my money. He's swearing at him. He's like poking him in the chest like that. And Frank is just like standing there taking it. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And uh, Tim gets back in the car. We go to work. We come home that night. Teepee is completely ransacked. There's clothes everywhere. Beds are tipped over, all that. So we're done. We move out. We find an apartment. By now, it's late summer. We're in this place for a few weeks. I go back to school. Tim comes into NMC, uh, gets an apartment here. And end of September, so I call him, and I'm like, hey, Tim, what's going on? Da, da, da. And we're kind of wrapping up. And uh, he says, oh, hey, I found that money. And I'm like, you found the money? He said, yeah, a mouse had taken it way to the back of the drawer and made a nest with his 300 bucks. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and he said, can you believe a mouse caused all that? And I'm like, yeah mouse, right? Because it's a lot, a lot easier to blame the mouse and look at our own prejudice, you know, our own tribe, our tribe, their tribe, the other, mental illness, all that. But all the, all the mouse did is pull the curtain back on all that. Thank you.
In our final story of the evening, told by me, I delineate all the distractions and aggravations in a succession of apartments that kept me from noticing all the problems I had with the man I was living with. So this guy who I met in grad school, oh my god, he was a well-read poet, he was a talented writer, he actually looked good in a newsboy cap, he had a fantastic laugh, spoken metaphors, won my heart because he would send me love letters that were deliberately grammatically incorrect. <laughs> and I, he was a talented musician, he could play any instrument, he knew everything about baseball, and I just desperately wanted in on his life. And then we lived together for six years, and I desperately wanted out. <laughs> so the final straw is probably going to sound eminently forgivable. He raised his voice at me when I was late picking him up from an ophthalmology appointment when he was getting new glasses. And OK, you know, if you believe in clocks, and I walk among you, um, perhaps me being 45 minutes late is egregious. And I have no doubt in my mind that he literally saw me go around the block 10 times before I finally stopped to pick him up. However, it was rush hour on a major Chicago downtown street. So I was not allowed to just stop and wait for him to show himself. I had to keep going. And the Iraq war had just started. So every time I got <laughs> a little bit up the block, there was just this major protest march that was going on. And so the cops, like, I had to wait for the cops to wave me through. And I told him all this. I said, if I had seen you, obviously I would have stopped. But he wasn't having that. He just wanted to yell. And as I'm listening to the words coming out of this guy's mouth, this guy who I was so helplessly in love with all this time, and I just kept thinking, God, you're so ugly. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. Allow me to back up. So we had been dating for a year when he decided to move to Cleveland to open a business with a childhood friend. And I was not done. I still wanted to be in that world of his words and his music and his talent. And I cried every time he talked about leaving. And I don't think it was my tears that actually convinced him. But at some point, he agreed with me that it was a good idea and I should come too. So our first place together was in the flats district of Cleveland, um, a warehouse that artists were converting into artist lofts. And so it was a rough space to share as our first place together. It was just one giant room and with a bathroom inside that he and his father had built. So it was drywall and it didn't, the walls did not reach up to the ceiling. So very little mystery um, going on in there. And um, I, he didn't have many friends besides a handful from growing up. And I didn't know anybody. So it was just constantly him and me and me and him and him and me and me and him. <laughs> a lot of together time. Um, the flats had recently emerged as a hotspot nightlife kind of situation. And so every night, 2 o'clock in the morning, we were guaranteed a serenade by the Woo Girls and the Ow Guys. Woo! Ow! <laughs> every fucking night. <laughs> There was also a dominatrix living in the apartment right below ours. And I don't think there are HIPAA laws that apply to dominatrix appointments. 
But if there were, all those laws would have been broken because I heard a lot that was so not my business. <laughs> His truck got stolen out from in front of the building and then we just finally got to a point where we thought, we don't like living here anymore. And we were thinking about leaving and we bumped into a guy who was holding a, a box full of stuff and we said, oh, are you moving? And he said, yeah, I can't stand it in this neighborhood anymore. And we said, oh, God, us too. And we found ourselves getting jealous that he was actually getting out. But the more we talked to him, the more we realized that we were talking about the woo girls and the ow guys. And he was talking about black people. And so I was like, wow, dude, we are so not in the same conversation, bro. <laughs> and it was just like, we do not belong here. And with all of that going on, all those irritations, I kind of failed to notice how he, my boyfriend, was pretty irritating. Anytime we did anything that was my idea, he would sit there with his hands or his arms crossed and just wearing the accessory of contempt on his face. And so, yeah. But we eventually did get out of this apartment and we moved on to the second floor of an owner-occupied A-frame at 55th and St. Clair. Very small. Tiny one bedroom, tiny kitchen, tiny bathroom, but so many walls, it was just heaven. And, uh, but not a great place. The owner controlled the heat, so we were always freezing. Somehow, every time I cooked chicken, we would be besieged by flies for days, and I never figured out why. Um, my car kept getting broken into now, three times at least, and the glorious grand total haul was an empty guitar case and $2.25 in coins but I had to pay for a new window every time. So, you know, as all of this was going on, I was paying so much attention to those things that I kept ignoring how snappish my boyfriend could be. Like the time that we were driving down the street and a, a sign for a business caught my eye and I said, what kind of company is that? And the response was, why do you fucking ask me fucking questions I don't fucking know the fucking answer to? So, <laughs> Cleveland did not work out. We, um, his business was just not, his business was kind of compromising his friendship with his buddy and my job proofreading help wanted ads was compromising my sanity. <laughs> if you think it sucks to look for a job, <laughs> have your job be reading help wanted ads. <laughs> okay, anyway, <laughs> sidebar. Uh, so, uh, we went back to Chicago. I moved into a townhouse, excuse me, a coach house in West Town. And he moved into a house with bike messengers in Bucktown. And it was really his idea to not live together anymore. He needed a break and I was totally fine with that. Um, I, my stuff had all been in storage for a long time. My dad had my cat. I was ready to just have my life back. Uh, but then I found out that two of his roommates, uh, they were women, and when they were not bike messengers, they were strippers. And now I was not okay with this. And that probably sounds kind of judgy, but do keep in mind, I was only in my mid-20s, and it was outside of my intellectual and emotional reach to understand that the collective wide world of women was not trying to fuck my boyfriend. <laughs> I have since learned. <laughs> but at some point, the strippers moved out, and I said, ooh, I'm going to move in. And I mean, 
to be honest with you, West Town was an invented real estate term. It was more to describe a neighborhood full of potential. But it really was just me and my coach house behind a building and then a whole lot of empty storefronts for blocks. And I always felt like the last person on earth. And uh, so that was the, <laughs> that was the given reason um, that I wanted to move in with them. But um, let's be honest, he was living with strippers. Now I had to watch everything. So I convinced them to let me move in, particularly because nobody else wanted to move in with them. So it was me or you all gotta go. So they welcomed me with arms. I don't wanna say open arms, but arms. <laughs> but living with them proved to be actually a huge mistake. Mike, who would shower for hours, yet always smelled like balls, um, <laughs> he, he turned out to have a massive heroin habit. And Matt, who we would always find passed out in various places, he turned out to be a low-functioning alcoholic. And so they would sometimes pay their rent, never on time. And someone thought it would be a good idea to put beat up couches on the porch, which became a beacon for stray dogs who would growl at me every time I came home. <laughs> but really, the bottom line is, I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink all that much. Their shop talk actually led me to hate bicycles. Like, how do you hate a bicycle? But, <laughs> but they talked about it all the time. I just, I did not belong there. And actually, even m the cats were miserable. So my, he had two, my boyfriend had two cats. I had a cat. One of his cats decided he hated my cat so much. And anytime she would do anything, go to eat, go to use the litter box, go say hi to a human. He was there to pounce on her. And so she had to find a way to improvise her activities of daily living because there was just, it was, this was not resolving itself. <laughs> like the one day that I walked into what could have been a dining room if any of us had dining room furniture, but instead it functioned as a floor to throw things on. And something caught my eye and I looked and I called to my boyfriend across the house and said, oh my God, the cat shat in Matt's hat. And while all these annoyances were going on, I failed to pay attention to just how mean my boyfriend could be. Like the times that he would come home from hanging out with his female friends and he would report to me in detail everything they did not like about me and uh, kind of make it sounded like he agreed with them. So ultimately, Matt and Mike, did they, they paid the rent not at all enough times that we got kicked out. First time I've ever been evicted. Actually, the only time I've ever been evicted. But anyway, um, <laughs> so Mike disappeared in the middle of the night. Matt had been missing for days. And then he, when he reemerged and he saw us walking out with boxes of our stuff, and he said, you're moving? <laughs> and we said, yeah, we're moving. And you're moving. And we told you this a week ago. And he had nowhere to go, had no recollection of the conversation, begged us to take him with us, and I said, absolutely not. So our next apartment was on, over a vacant storefront on a busy section of a major Chicago street. And terrible landlord. <laughs> um, I mean, the apartment was okay. There were some issues that we, you know, in, in Chicago, all the buildings are pretty much lined up with no space. So our, it was very stale in our apartment because the only windows overlooked air shafts. 
and we lost one of our bedrooms to become the cat banishment room because clearly our cats were never going to get along. So sometimes his cats were in the room, sometimes my cat was in the room. And on this one day that my cat had her freedom, she, I was on the phone pacing and talking to my cousin and pacing up and down the hallway. And I noticed my cat was staring intently into the bathroom. And I said, what are you looking at? And I peeked in and brown wastewater was bubbling up through the toilet and onto the floor. I gotta go. So I called my landlord and he said, well, have you been flushing hairbrushes down the toilet? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and he said, I've had this problem with tenants before. Have you been flushing hairbrushes down the toilet? And I said, well, no, he's bald and we're adults and what? And uh, so he didn't treat this with any urgency. Um, he did come over within a couple days and he finally uh, was trying to snake the toilet, could not uh, get it figured out. So he said, well, you guys can use the, the, uh, the toilet in the, in the vacant storefront until I get this figured out. So, you know, not an ideal solution, but a solution. Uh, but every now and then it would happen again because we had upstairs neighbors and any time they were using their plumbing, it would happen all over again. And I would plead with them and I said, I know, I understand this is your home and you want to wash your dishes when you can and you want to take showers as long as you can. But please, I have like sewage coming into my home. And uh, the final straw or when it finally got resolved, I should say, was when uh, <laughs> I called the landlord and his wife answered. This was about two weeks of uh, this problem. Um, his wife answered and I said something that I'm so grateful I've only had to say once in this lifetime. And that was, hi, so we've been going to the bathroom downstairs for like two weeks now. And since plumbing, I think, goes down, I can only assume that what I'm looking at in my bathroom is neighbor poo. Yeah, not cool. So, so the, the wife, <laughs> she took care of it. Um, but while all this was going on, all these aggravations, I really was not paying attention to just how mean my boyfriend could be. Like when we both got sent home on 9-11 and we were watching the repeat footage of all the unspeakably terrible things that were happening. And he turned to me at one point and said, what the fuck are you crying for? Do you think you knew anyone in those buildings? So, <laughs> our next apartment was beautiful and our landlords were delightful. We had no roommate issues, no landlord issues, and we could just quietly enjoy each other in the quiet. And then I realized I'm not enjoying myself. I made a mistake that I think is not all that uncommon. I kept waiting for the guy I fell in love with to come back. And I kept fighting all this time because he was my boyfriend, not because he was him. And so it wasn't long after this ophthalmology appointment that I was picking him up from that we were brushing our teeth one night and I just looked at him and suggested, I think we should break up. And it was pretty much with the same amount of emotion as if I were, had told him, you have a piece of fuzz on your shirt. <laughs> and he agreed. He thought this was a damn fine idea. 
and we lived like roommates for a couple months until he could find a place that he found suitable. And throughout this time, he kept asking me, are you sure you don't want to change your mind? Let's go back to the way we were. Are you sure? Are you sure? But I realized that once all those obstacles were out of my line of sight and I could see the way we were, I could see he was really a terrible person. So I like to say that somehow he got a prescription for glasses, but they helped me to see. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, the Workshop Brewing Company, and to our guest MC for Two Bedroom, Two Bath, Dan Wanshura. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next month for Calamity, tales of natural and unnatural disasters. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.